Um, we're in the middle of a series called The Risen Way of the Kingdom. And after Easter, we're, we've been asking ourselves the question, if Jesus rose from the dead, how should we live in response? Um, because part of what Pastor Rich has been reminding us is that the resurrection is God's way of confirming everything that Jesus said about himself is true. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And then if we pursue him and follow him, we will find God. And the resurrection reminds us that it's God's way of confirming that everything Jesus said about the kingdom of God, about the way the people of God should live, is the way and the truth of life for us, that that should shape the ways that we move ahead. And I don't know about you, but um, as we've been going through this series, I find myself constantly convicted and then constantly uh, engaging with God, so that as we talked about the Beatitudes right after Easter, right, what does it mean to mourn with those who mourn, to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to be people who long for one thing? I just thought, man, I don't do that. And I had to repent and then lean in and begin to ask God, will you help me become the kind of person that you want? And after we finished the Beatitudes, we've been on what I think of as a really difficult series, not because it's been difficult, particularly, I suspect, for Rich to preach, because he's excellent at preaching, but it was difficult to hear, right? So you might remember the sermons on uh, when Jesus says, uh, you've heard it said, you shall not commit murder, but if you're even utter an angry word, if your heart is turned against someone, it's as if you've murdered them. And we as a congregation had to think through, is my heart pressed in a posture of love, or am I secretly murdering people with my words and my deeds and my spirit? Last week, Rich challenged us to think about our sexuality and how do we live, because the Old Testament says, as Jesus reminded us, you shall not commit adultery, but if you even lust in your heart, you're abusing the people around you, you're objectifying them, you're reducing them to a thing. And what does it mean to actually pursue relationships with integrity and purity and love and flourishing instead? And we had to sit back and repent and lean into God. So I'm going to invite us, um, let's pray together to prepare our hearts for how God might call us to conviction as well as to leaning into him today. Father, we believe you've spoken in your word to remind us and appoint us to the fact that Jesus Christ is our Savior and Lord and to give us hope that the Holy Spirit will be at work within us, transforming us day by day into greater Christ-likeness. So I pray, help us to hear your voice, cause us to cling to Jesus, and then make us more receptive to the work that your Holy Spirit desires to do within us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. One of the most terrible things you'll hear from a child probably is something like, but you promised! I don't know if any parents ever hear that and feel that same sense of failure and dread when you hear that, but you promised we would go or do something. You're like, oh, right? The, the deep sense of failure and shame that you weren't able to do it. Because promises matter. And we know it from something as small as that to something larger, right? The um, reality when marital bonds are betrayed, part of what causes the heartache and part of what causes the outrage is you promised to be faithful. It richer or poorer in sickness and health. How could you do this? How could you break your promise, right? At the very personal small level to the larger level that sustains our families, we know promises matter. It's true for us as a society. 
Um, I think part of the rhetorical power of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s speech when he did the I Have a Dream speech was the way he invoked the issue of promises, right? So he said, we have come here today to dramatize a shameful condition. In a sense, we've come to our nation's capital to cash a check. When the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. The note was a promise that all men, yes, black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is obvious today that America has defaulted on this promissory note insofar as her citizens of color are concerned. Instead of honoring the sacred obligation, America has given the Negro people a bad check, a check which has come back marked insufficient funds. And part of the power and part of the promise of the civil rights movement was, even at the social, governmental levels, promises matter. That when our country was founded, he was arguing there was a promise. Everyone should enjoy life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And we all know that's not what we've experienced. That's not what continues to be experienced now. But part of what drives the power of the protests back in the 1960s and into today is a sense we want people, we want as a country for people to fulfill those kind of promises because promises matter. Weirdly, or surprisingly, promises seem to matter to Jesus as well. And that's the passage that we come to today. Jesus says in Matthew 5, beginning in verses 33 through 37, he says again, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot control even one, so you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need is to simply say yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. So why is Jesus talking about promises all of a sudden in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, right? He's been talking about this is the character of the people of God. I long for you to be people of character, people who long and thirst for righteousness, who desire one thing, who have purity in heart. Then he talks about murder, unless you're like, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. That's ex- exactly what I expect you to talk about. Why this talk now about the vows that you make and the promises that you keep? Why is it important that our yes be yes and our no's be no? I want to suggest it's in part the context, right? Jesus has just talked, as Rich preached on last week, about what sexual morality looks like, right? Do not commit adultery, but don't even have lust in your heart. And then the intervening passage, which we have not covered, Jesus talks about the reality of divorce. Why Moses permitted it, why God grieves over it, and what are the conditions through which it, may be, it might be acceptable. And I think as he's thinking about marriage and the reality of lust and how marriages break down, he starts thinking about, well, if we're going to talk about how marriages break down, let's talk about promises and the pro- oaths that we make, the commitments that we make to one another. How will we live those out? I think he's also thinking about it um, in this context because as he's thinking about where does the Old Testament call us to one thing, and where have we broken down in our inability to live that out? He's thinking about these kind of promises. That's one of the reasons this first section of the passage exists. He says, you know in the Old Testament, right, in in, uh, Numbers and in Exodus, Scripture says, if you make a vow before the Lord, follow it. 
And he says, but I'm telling you, don't even make vows because what was happening to the people of Israel at the time of Jesus' preaching and teaching is people said, if you make a vow in the Lord's name, you have to keep it. That's what scripture says. But if you say, I promise you by heaven I'm going to do it, then you're kind of off the hook because that's not God himself. That's just heaven. So people would be like, how about can I, can I make a vow like, I swear to you by Jerusalem, the holy city, that I'll do that. Is that binding on me? And they're like, well, it's not God's name. You're kind of off the hook, right? And part of what Jesus is saying is um, don't do it. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Your promises should be kept because you worship and follow a promise-keeping God. Why does Jesus object to people who break their promises? Why does he object to people who can't keep their vows? Why does he want us to be people of verbal integrity? I want to suggest that it's because when we don't have verbal integrity, when we don't keep our promises, when our yes is not our yes and our no is not our no, um, one, it distorts our discipleship. Um, It distorts our discipleship. Part of what was going on at the time by this kind of verbal play that they were doing, was they were trying to limit the application of an Old Testament command by hemming it in with a set of linguistic tricks, right? If I make a promise to God, I have to keep it. So I'm just going to promise by heaven, not by God, right? Or I'm going to not promise by God, I'm going to promise by Jerusalem. And Jesus goes, do you see how ridiculous this is? When you promise... By God's name, of course you should obey, but if you promise by heaven, whose heaven do you think that is? And if you're promised by the earth, whose earth do you think this is? Whose city do you think you were promising when you promised to Jerusalem? Do you think that just by language you could narrow the expectation that God has that we'd be people of integrity who do what we say we will do and follow through with what we need to follow through? Now, lest we be so harsh, it's clear, right? We do this all the time. Think about the expert of the law who came to Jesus and said, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you know the commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And with, I think, a lot of boldness, the teacher goes, well, I do that all the time. And Jesus goes, well, and then love your neighbor as yourself. And then the man tries to narrow what Jesus is saying and what Scripture commands by going, well, who's my neighbor? Right? Because essentially he's like, sure, I can love my neighbor as long as I get to choose them. I'm going to choose the fun neighbor, the neighbor who never asks me for anything, the neighbor who I really enjoy. I'm going to choose about five neighbors because I can love five people, and the rest of you all aren't neighbors, so I don't need to worry about it, right? And so what does Jesus do when he gets the question, who is my neighbor? Jesus tells him a story, right? There was a man walking down from Jerusalem to Jericho who's attacked by robbers and a religious man walks past him and even though he's bleeding and hurt and another religious man walks past him even though the man is clearly suffering then finally a despised marginalized Samaritan who hate has been hated on by the Jews and who hates the Jews in return sees him and then shows mercy to him and takes care of him and then Jesus asked the question not who is my neighbor but who was a neighbor to that man that Jewish man who was attacked, and it was clear the answer is a Samaritan. Jesus says, the question is not who is my neighbor, but who will you make a neighbor to yourself? Who will you adopt as a neighbor, right? But it was clear that he was like, if I can narrow who's a neighbor, then I'm set. We do this all the time in other places. Um, I just saw a survey, and the question was the church wrestling with, when I give 
When I make my offering, does that come off of the gross pay or net pay? Right? And fundamentally, what we're trying to like, I'm willing to give to Jesus, but I'd like to know just how little I need to give. As a person who works with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, I work with college students, the question I always get, right, is how far can we go with my boyfriend or girlfriend before it's sin? Right? How close to the line can I get? And the, the reality is, right, you see fundamentally what's going on in each one of those situations when it's like, who is my neighbor? Is it gross or net pay against which I tithe? How far can I go with my boyfriend or girlfriend before I've committed sexual sin? Once you've asked those kinds of questions, you've completely missed the point of what God intended in Scripture to bless us and to keep us safe. And that's exactly what they were doing at the time. If I swear by God, but I don't have to swear by something else, right? Because the reality is, what God was commanding, was says, love your neighbor as yourself, is the world is your neighbor. You have a responsibility to the people around you, the people who smell good and the people who don't smell good, the people who are polite and the people who are impolite, the people who have resources to offer you and the people who need something from you. All of these are your neighbors. Be a neighbor to them, right? When he... When we ask questions about giving, it shouldn't be how much can I keep for myself and how little do I need to give away, but it's that prayer of generosity that we pray every week for a reason. In a culture that tells us to keep what you can and grab for more, we remind ourselves, you, God, are a generous God. And you've been generous to us and you invite us to give for our own flourishing and for the sake of other people. It's not how much I can give and Retain for myself, it's how much have you invited me to give and give away. It's not a question of how far can I go before we sin, but to ask a completely different question. I think of a friend of mine, her name was Karen, and Karen and I were asked to do a panel on um, sex and dating because I work with college students, so we get to ask to do that panel a lot. <clears throat> and I remember Karen, the question came, how far can I go? And Karen said, you know, I think that's the wrong question. The way I approach this question is this. The man I'm dating now, but she was in a dating relationship, I ask myself every time things start to happen, like as start, we move toward physical contact, this is the question I ask myself. Will my husband thank me later and bless me for what we are about to do if I don't end up marrying this guy? And she said, and I'm trying to think as I interact with my boyfriend, if we don't marry, will his wife in the future thank me for the evening that we are about to have? But do you see how radically that changes the question? It's not how far can I go, it's a question of how do I create the kind of relationship which is filled with blessing and thanks rather than regret and recrimination? How do I steward myself and this relationship so that both of us, not just now, but 20 years from now, look back with gratefulness at what happened and with joy, right, that the invitation from God is to create life-giving spaces, spaces of flourishing and help, but so often we use these lines to try to narrow it down, and that's what they were doing at the time, because when you ask questions of how far can I go, how little can I give, it, does this vow count or that vow not count, you distort our discipleship. You begin to experience God as restrictive and limiting rather than him safely creating environments where we can flourish. It distorts our <clears throat> discipleship in another way. <clears throat> it seems to suggest, you know, God is really concerned with the specific language that you use. If you say, by God, you're in trouble, 
But if you say by heaven, he doesn't care, right? As if God's really that kind of nitpicky. As if he's like, heaven, I, I belong to me, but heaven doesn't belong to me. My name is important, but the earth isn't important, right? You swear by me, but you, you know, that there are two things there. One, the entire universe is God's. It's his heaven, right? It's his earth. Even the hairs on your head, Jesus seems to say, belong to God. You can dye them all you want, but you cannot control what color they ultimately become in their heart of hearts, <laughs> as people of my age are discovering to our dismay. So don't pray, don't make about, I, you know, I promise by my own head this will happen. You can't control what's happening with your head or in your head. Have some humility. All of it belongs to God. And then maybe more importantly, it's not about the specific things you say. It's about the specific kind of person you're becoming that Jesus is ultimately concerned about, right? Use what language you want, but be aware it reflects the kind of person you are. I remember a conversation I was having with my children. They're seven and nine. They happen to be here in the front row. But those of us who are parents will remember that stage somewhere around second or third grade when um, your children discover words that you don't use at home very frequently. Do you remember that moment? <laughs> There's that kind of embarrassment that they have that, like, we've heard people at class use these words, but there's kind of excitement that they know this kind of dangerous word, and this, like, I, I almost want to say it, but I know I shouldn't, right? And they're just so, like, oh. And then you have to think, how are we going to parent this moment? How are we going to disciple this moment? And... Um, my thought when I was having that conversation with my children was that in the end, I'm less concerned with the specific words that you use because I'm more concerned by the kind of person you're becoming. Do you need to use swear words or are you going to grow into the kind of person who manages anger and disappointment in ways which are healthy and honor God? Right? That's the issue there more than the dangerousness of the word. Are you going to use words in ways which honor and ennoble the people around you, even if they've hurt you or frustrate you? Or will you use words to demean and destroy them? That's what I'm concerned about when we talk about dirty words, right? Are you going to show that you're an articulate communicator to express the range of your disappointments and frustrations? Or are you going to be reduced um, to gutter language because you have nothing better to say, no clearer way to explain what's going on. I'll admit at this point, that's probably less a Christian thing than just kind of being a nerd. Intellectual thing, like, I want you to sound smart. But in the end, I, the, the bad word thing doesn't trouble me because they're bad words. I'm concerned about the bad heart that will develop if you give yourself into this. Right? And Jesus is saying... You're so caught up on what words you're using, and I'm so much more worried about the heart that it reflects. Because if you think just by invoke, not invoking the name of God, you can get out of being a promise-keeping kind of person, then you lack integrity. You're a liar and betrayer. That's not what I want for you. Why does Jesus want our yes to be yes and our no to be no? Why do we... Why does he call us to be promise-keeping kind of people? Because it distorts our discipleship when we don't do it. It doesn't just distort our discipleship. It actually distorts our community when we begin to live in this kind of way. Um, what happens when we become covenant breakers, 
and people who fail at keeping promises. Um, what happens when you can't trust the people around you? And by this, I mean even small promises like, yeah, yeah, let's get together for lunch. And you know we're never going to call one another to set up that lunch. Right? Yeah, yeah, we should get together. and We know it's not going to happen. Those are small things, but the reality is, and, and I'm going to confess, right, I'm terrible at doing this. Um, and I know in my heart of hearts, if we say, oh, we should get together, and you don't force me to put it into my um, calendar as we're speaking, it will probably never happen. Right? And my spouse knows how frequently and how untrustworthy I am with that. And the problem with that, right, is that if we no longer trust one another to speak words when we make commitments to one another, it erodes the trust between us, right? Like, I may still like you, but I know that you're not reliable. If I can't trust you to follow through and call me to set up lunch, it's going to be very difficult for me as a member of this family to trust that you're going to show up when I'm in a crisis. Right? If, if we can't actually do the things that we say with one another, then yeah, maybe you'll express compassion if a family member dies when they die, but six months later when I still need somebody to pray with and weep with and talk to and need support, I have a hard time believing you're going to be there. We know this is true, right? In marriages, for people who've experienced infidelity, I've talked to a number of spouses and what they said is the hardest thing to do is to trust them even after they've repented. Even as we're working on our marriage, every time they're gone, I'm wondering, right? It erodes, it corrodes the relationships that we have when we aren't trustworthy to one another. And I know, for me, this is an area that I fail in all the time. I'm always like, oh, yeah, sure, we'll do that. It's true at work. Yeah, I'll send you that report. And slowly they realize you're never going to send it. Why does Jesus care? Because when we don't follow through and we don't keep our promises, well, we, our yes is not our yes and our no is not our no, it erodes trust. It distorts our community. It distorts not just our community life together, it actually distorts our witness externally. <clears throat> um, it's difficult for the church to speak credibly and powerfully on marriage when our ability, um, when our divorce rate is nearly identical to those who do not follow Jesus. Because we can talk about how God values marriage, but the reality is that God seems to have no impact on our ability to sustain our own marriages. And the watching world has noticed, right? It happens uh, as we engage in the larger uh, political conversation. So whether you're a conservative church or you're a more progressive liberal church, as I do evangelism on campus and talk to people in the community, our inconsistency, right, our failure to let our yes be yes and our no be no causes them to question whether we really believe the things that we say we believe. Let me give two examples. Um, the Public Religion uh, Research Institute did a survey both in 2011 and 2016, and they asked a single question, or they asked this question, um, do you believe that um, a president who commits an immoral act in private can act morally in their public office as president, right? Does their private life matter um, as you think about their ability to pursue their public duties? In 2011, um, only 30% of people who claim to be Bible-believing Christians, only 30% said it was possible to be immoral privately and still be moral publicly. By 2016, 72% said, it was possible to be immoral privately 
and still be moral publicly, right? The numbers had perfectly reversed. Essentially here, let me draw it down this way. When there was a Democratic president, Bible-believing Christians who were surveyed said, 70% of them said, it's really critical that they live a moral life so that I can trust them as a public leader. With a Republican president, only 30% said that that was important. The percentages reversed in five years. I think Christians who say their yes should be yes and their no should be no should have a consistent answer. Regardless of who's president, regardless of what party is in office, right? But our inconsistency in that has caused so many people that I talk to to go, it's clear you do not care about scripture or the teachings of Jesus. What you want is power. I see your idol and I name it. On the progressive end, right, we see this all the time. Our progressive colleagues are happy to um, fight for uh, and against injustice, so they will fight for refugees, they will fight for undocumented um, immigrants, and then yet when it comes to the unborn and truly voiceless, they're suddenly silent. I just saw an article um, in the news three weeks ago which celebrated the fact that Down syndrome has almost been completely eliminated in Iceland. And what they weren't willing to say, but what conservatives had to point out is it's not that Down syndrome has been eliminated. You've eliminated the people with Down syndrome by systematically aborting everyone who, before they're born. Right? But the lack of consistency for both sides causes at least the non-Christians I talk to and engage with to say, I don't believe you're actually motivated by the principles and values of Jesus. I think you're pursuing something else. When our yes is not yes and our no is not no, when our convictions change on convenience, when we don't follow the example of a promise-keeping, faithful God who's consistent yesterday and today, then people question the witness of our community. Why does Jesus object when we don't keep our promises and we don't follow the example of a promise-keeping God? I think... In the end, part of what happens is that it distorts our understanding about God. The God we're called to imitate, right? Um, Because essentially you're denying God's character. Our God is the promise-keeping God. Our God is the covenant-keeping God, right? The God we worship promised to Abraham in Genesis 12 that one day I will make of you a mighty nation that will bless all of the nations. And through idolatry and indifference and injustice, he continues to be faithful as promised till one day it begins to be fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, who dies in our place and on our behalf to gather all the nations to himself, right? And this church gives us a foretaste of what it will be like when we stand in glory before the God of the universe and people from every tribe, nation, language, and tongue will be gathered to him. For thousands of years, he's been fulfilling the promises that he made to Abraham. We worship a promise-keeping, covenant-keeping God. Thanks be to God, because I could not be a Christian if I didn't think God would fulfill his promises, right? He promised one day, I will stand before him perfect in Christ-likeness, and he will not stop until he completed the good work he began in me. Praise be to God, because it's not going to happen because I worked hard on my own. I would despair about my own failures at pursuing Jesus if I couldn't trust that he would keep his promise. It's only the fact that he would keep his promise that keeps me going, 
right? I know when I look at the injustice of the world, it's brokenness both in the environment and in the ways that people relate together. There seems to be no solution. There seems to be no hope. And yet one day God says, I will make everything new. I will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The sun will no longer beat on them by day. They will no longer wander at night. But I will be their God and they will be my people. I will allow them to flourish and I will break the chains of injustice, right? I will loose those who have been chained and the world will resound with my glory and it will be filled with my glory like the oat waters fill the sea. I couldn't do the work I do. I couldn't live in the culture I live in without believing that one day God will fulfill his promises. Why is it important for us to fulfill our promises? Because we should look more like the God we worship. We should look more like Jesus, in whom all the amens come to fruition. And when we don't, then people legitimately have to ask the question, what kind of God do you worship? It's been fascinating over the last couple months, right, the Me Too movement that's addressed issues of sexual harassment and sexual abuse have fully come home to roost in the Protestant church. We've been talking about what's happened to the Catholic church for years, but suddenly the Church Too movement has really taken hold. And in seminary after seminary and church after church, we've seen places where pastors and Christian leaders have betrayed their flock, right? And we've always known this has happened, but it's become through social media more obvious, more public, and more destructive. And I can't tell you how many people I see regularly on social media and interact with in the places that I work who said, I used to be a Christian until I saw the way the church treated a friend of mine who had been sexually assaulted by a leader of the church, and I can no longer trust the church or the God the church claims to speak about. But if we worship a God, right, who binds up the brokenhearted, who extends mercy to those who've been abused and destroyed, who promises to raise them up, renew them and restore them, then we should look more like that kind of church too. When our yes is not yes and our no is not no, it distorts our discipleship, it destroys our community, and it distorts our understanding and witness to God. So what do we do? How do you live in a situation like that? Part of what Jesus reminds us again, right, is all you need to say really is a simple yes or no. Um, anything beyond this comes from the evil one. And the reason he says anything comes beyond this comes from the evil one is you only need a contract if you think the other person is going to fail, right? If you trust, if I was a business owner, you trusted me, we don't need a contract. You know I will do what I say and I know you will pay. I don't need a legal document to protect myself. But if I cannot trust you, then I would like a contract, please, right? And so he's saying the, your, the very fact that you want an oath suggests to me, Jesus seems to be saying, that you're a little prone to lying. You're not really trustworthy. So Let's become the kind of people for whom our yes is yes and our no is no. How do we do that? Um, one of the things I think we need to do is we need to embrace our limits. I was thinking about um, why I fail at this all the time. And I'll just say, working on this sermon was terribly convicting because I know how frequently I make promises I do not keep. And I was trying to think through, why do I fail so consistently and terribly at that, at work and at home? And part of it is this basic, emotionally healthy spiritual, spirituality practice, right? I have to embrace my limits. And what do I mean by that? I have to accept that my limitations of time, energy, um, attention, 
and capacity are actually God-given gifts to me rather than um, things I should violate. It would be better for my friends and family for me to say I cannot do that than to promise I will and not do it. It would be more honest and helpful for my friends if they say, yeah, yeah, we should get together for me to go, it's not going to happen for three months, <laughs> rather than leave them dangling, right? It's one of the reasons why I've had a number of people call me um, over the last couple of years and say, hey, would you, would you become an accountability partner for me? Would you pray with me? And what I always say is like, no, which is a terrible thing to say as a professional Christian. <laughs> but um, the, the reality is what I have to say to them is, you know, honestly, um, given the pace of my life and the way I'm living, I am a terrible accountability partner. Um, I will call you for like the first three weeks and then I'll travel or something will happen and I'll forg- then I won't get back to you for three or four weeks. And all of a sudden, seven weeks have gone by, we haven't talked, and you're going to feel like let down and betrayed. I'm going to feel guilty, which only makes me not want to talk to you more. And it, it's just going to end poorly. But part of what I need to do, right, if I'm going to become a mature, emotionally mature person is to say, I know what my limits are. I cannot do what you would like me to do, and it would be better and more honoring to you as somebody created in God's image who I love to tell you no now, clearly, than to lie to you with a false yes. Part of growing as people who yes is yes or no, no, is to embrace our limits, which is a core discipline our church is trying to grow in. In part, what we need to do is treat our relationships as more important than our convenience, right? Isn't that part of the reason we break um, our vows, our promises to one another? It's not just that we don't have limits, but in the end, our own convenience and comfort trumps our commitment to our relationship to other people. So it's increasingly, it's almost a joke here in New York City that people say, sure, I'm coming, and then they feel free to cancel up to the last minute. I can't make it. Something better has come along, right? Um, I think if embracing our limits helps us address the distortions of our discipleship, it's choosing to believe that our relationships are more important than our convenience helps us re-engage with community. Now, limits and what I've just said about treating our relationships as more important live in tension, obviously, right? You can't respond to every need. But I think it makes us ask questions and reflect on um, what promises should we be making and have we made to one another as a Christian community that we are not living through because our convenience is trumping um, our relationship. I want to offer one community as an example. Uh, I I do a fair amount of ministry with um, gay-identifying or same-sex-attracted Christians who are committed to Scripture and therefore choosing to live celibately and honoring Jesus in the ways that they live. And the question that they've constantly asked me and the people I've been working with have been this. If you're going to call me to submit all of my desires and all of my relationships to Jesus and to pursue a celibate lifestyle, not just now, but for the rest of my life so that I won't have the kind of family that some of you have the opportunity of enjoying right now or have the possibility of enjoying later if you're single, then will you promise that you will be the family that I will not have? Will you be the people who, it's not that I'm invited to your house when you choose to invite me on the random weekend, but you expect me to show up just like you hope your own children would show up if they were to live out of town. 
Will I be an automatic expected friend who of course is celebrating a holiday with you because you are my family and I'm your family that you know I don't even need an invitation because I just expect to be there and you expect me to be there. When I'm old and alone, will you be the people who come to my bedside when I'm in a rehab facility or have dementia and nobody else will visit me? Will you still show up? Because if you aren't willing to do those things, then do not call me to the hard task of discipleship that is set before me. You don't have the right because you don't intend to be there. What promises as a church community are we making to one another in discipleship by being in community that we need to actually begin to live out so that we have integrity in the act of discipleship that we call one another to? How will we care for one another's children as we should when we watch those kids get baptized and say, we are part of the community of God called to disciple you into faith? How will we care for our older saints whose families may be far away, right? If we are part of the people of God, we've made these promises together. We need to live them out together. Maybe lastly, um, if failing to be people whose yes is yes and a no is no disrupts our discipleship and our community, it also disrupts who our understanding of God, I want to suggest that we value God's reputation more than our own. People have a hard time believing in a promise-keeping God when they've never seen a promise-keeping people. People have a hard time believing that he'll be faithful to his covenant when we so quickly betray our own. People need a visible example of the kingdom breaking in so that they can see faithfulness before them in order to trust a God they cannot see. And to do that, it means we'll reshape our lives around this. Like I said, as I was working on the sermon, I was really convicted because I'm so terrible at keeping promises, and I don't do a good job at fulfilling my covenants. And I don't know about you, but I suspect in multiple different ways, promises that you've not kept, obligations that you've let slide, have come to mind. Let me suggest two practical things that we might try. One might be, Pay attention this week to the things and promises that you make. The casual offers, the implicit promises that you accept, just pay attention to how many of those you make and how many that you actually intend and in fact do keep. For some of us, like me, the other thing will be, man, it fills you with a sense of failure. That's why the second thing I'd like to suggest is we take communion together. You see, when we take communion together, As we do, we remember our God is a covenant-keeping God. When we take communion together, we're remembering our God keeps his promises. When we take the bread and the cup, we're being reminded in a concrete way that God keeps his promises. Over thousands of years at great cost to himself for the sake of a relationship with us, God keeps his promises. And we take it in faith that he will continue to fulfill his promises, right? When we take the bread and the cup, we're saying, you died in our place and on our behalf, and one day you will come again and complete all that you began, and that's why we celebrate communion together. If God were not faithful to his promises, if he didn't keep his covenants, then what we'd be doing instead in just a few minutes is taking a really dry piece of cracker and dipping in overly sweet grape juice until it gets soggy and sticking in our mouth and wondering why we're doing it. But because God is a covenant-keeping God, 
because God keeps his promises, suddenly bread and cup become the body and flesh of Jesus and we remind ourselves. He promised he would come to save us. He did come to save us. And one day he will return and complete the work of saving us. And we proclaim that concretely by taking communion together. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. I'd like to give us a moment to reflect on the promises we've made and the promises that we failed, the ways that we have not drawn and lived as Jesus called us to do, and then press in to the fact that our failure to keep our promises does not prevent God from keeping his. Our inability to do what we say and be who we want to be is an invitation to Je- from Jesus to say, come, draw close to me and allow the Holy Spirit to transform you. After a few minutes of reflection, we'll put up a prayer of confession, We'll pray it together, and then the ushers will lead you um, to the communion tables on either side. We invite you to take um, the bread, dip it in the cup, go back to your seat, uh, and then we will take and eat together.